This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 28. And the quote of the day is from Duke Ellington, who said, The wise musicians are those who play what they can master. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ruffini. We're coming at you with information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. going on everybody nick ruffini here with another session of the drummers resource podcast and first of all thank you so much for all the ratings and reviews i know i say that a lot but i really want to let everybody know that i really appreciate it and keep them coming if you would just leave a review on itunes or a rating for the podcast i would truly appreciate it and it helps us in the rating so it gets us up there so the other people that are looking for drum stuff find the drummers resource podcast which is always cool speaking of cool we got bruce becker on the show today and bruce is a legendary teacher who studied with the infamous freddie gruber for years and not only did he study with him he's the only person that we know of that has done clinics with freddie and for those of you who don't know who Freddie Gruber is, he was, um, Neil Peart called him the, the Yoda of drumming. And Freddie had this unique approach and has taught some of the greatest players in the world, like Steve Smith, Dave Weckl, uh, and Bruce Brecker himself. And Bruce is, has taken all this knowledge from Freddie and developed his own, his own approach, um, to teaching with this, with this Freddie Gruber technique. And, Bruce teaches a lot on Drum Channel and and has toured around the country playing music as well. And his insights into playing and technique and facility are so amazing. And we're going to get into that today. And he has a new DVD out called Drumming with Bruce Becker, Concepts and Philosophies, which I just started going through the DVD today. It's great so far. I can't wait to dig into the rest of it because I'm really getting some good knowledge out of it. So we're going to talk about that DVD as well. So without further ado... Mr. Bruce Becker. Bruce, what's happening, man? Thanks so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate your time as well. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. And I always, I always start every interview the same way, and I always ask people how they got into drumming and how they, how they kind of got the drum bug, so to speak. So give us a little brief history on yourself and how you got into this. Sure. Uh, my my uh, story is a little funny. Um, when my little brother, my younger brother David, who I work with to this day still, uh, when he was a kid, every Christmas he wanted to be the little drummer boy. So every Christmas, my mom and dad would get him a toy drum. And that extended from, I think, at least from when he was two till he was about eight or nine, uh, at which point they actually got a really cool little set for him. It was a Remco, if you remember the Remco toy company drum set. Mm-hmm. And the drums actually had real Remo heads on them. And uh, I think the bass drum pedal broke after about a week because it was plastic. But <laughs> nonetheless, my brother could already kind of play beats. Uh, and when he was looking to uh, study drums, he went into the junior high band program uh, as an elementary school guy to study. Mm-hmm. Had the Regal Tip 2Bs, Remo Practice Pad, Buddy Rich Henry Adler book. Right. Went and studied the six weeks that you did that to prime you for the uh, following year for the band program. And it didn't resonate with him. And around that same time, that summer, five boys in the neighborhood, my brother, myself, and three other guys were sitting around on a hot August day in uh, the valley, wrapping around going, let's start a band. 
So before I had a chance to say everything, anything, I mean, uh, all four guys blurted out what they wanted to do. Uh, two guys quickly, I'm playing guitar. Third guy, I'm playing piano because I'm already playing or studying piano. And my brother just looked and said, well, I'll play bass. And then four heads looking at me and saying, so you're our drummer, man. <laughs> and that that's funny because, you know, you think, all right, yeah, right. Right. Within three minutes of that, the one kid, Tom, I'll never forget him, Tom Brunty, my neighbor, he grabbed the yellow pages, opened them up, and found a, a drum teacher who made house calls and called him up and said, uh, my friend wants to take drum lessons and handed me the phone. And that was it. Really? And I stammered and stuttered and went, um, sure, I got to ask my mom. And of course, uh, my mom was, was, you know, somewhat supportive with our music endeavors. And um, her response was, you can study the drum, but you have to play on the practice pad for one year before we buy you a drum set. Right. And I just kind of rubbed my hands together and I said, that deal will be easily met. And that was it. Once I got bitten from that, that particular bug, uh, as you say, uh, that kind of just propelled me into the drum land. And so, you know, upon answering this question, I would say I didn't choose the drums. The drums chose me. Right. And that's really, really how it was. I mean, it was such a off the wall little story. I mean, had we not been sitting in there, maybe I didn't pick up the drums, who knows? But, uh, once I had a pair of sticks and a practice pad and had my first few lessons with my drum teacher at the time, I was totally, you know, into it. It, it made sense to me. So. So you spent the whole year on the pad. They, you know, they, did they I did. break down after six months or so? And uh, no, no, no. They they held they held their end of the deal. In fact, they went a little bit over the year, uh, like maybe a month or so. And my drum teacher at that time was saying, "Hey, we really got to get Bruce a drum set now because it's time to move on. He's got you know enough proficiency on the practice pad and to keep the enthusiasm and the learning process to really you know keep growing. It's going to be in your best interest to get him a drum set, and which was." was cool because he went out with my mom and looked for a good drum set at a very reasonable price. And, you know, this is back in the 70s, so prices are much cheaper. But I got a wonderful little uh, four-piece Ludwig set for about 225 bucks. It was a 60s Ludwig, but mm -hmm. it had been rewrapped. So oh, nice. he didn't have – none of the badges were on, on the drum set at all. But, man, what a deal, you know. And it came with cymbals, et cetera. I think I had to buy – later on a bass drum pedal and a, a better hi-hat stand. I had that old uh, flat-based Slingerland hi-hat stand that just didn't really, you know, for rock and roll kids at that right. time, didn't really hold up. So, right. but yeah, you know, it was, it was really a, a golden time. And uh, yeah, my mom and dad did adhere to the deal. They were just a little uh, lax on the, on the time frame right. when the year hit, they didn't look at the clock. <laughs> and go, well, let's go get you a drum set, Bruce. It was like, uh, can we drag this out? Maybe he'll give up. No, right. Now, what about the rest of the guys in the band? Did they, I mean, did the band go on for a little while or did everybody no, kind no, of fizzle out and follow through? The only guy to follow through later on was my brother, David, because as I got involved in the junior high band program, I knew how that worked. And when he was entering that, the seventh grade at that time, our, our junior high schools were seven through nine. Um, I told him, I said, David, jump into beginning brass and take trumpet. It's a cool instrument. And you'll be promoted to the junior band in your spring semester. And in eighth grade, you'll be promoted to the senior band. You'll be in the Tuesday band, Tuesday jazz band. And in uh, ninth grade, you'll be in the Monday night jazz band. You'll be the senior band. You'll be first chair. You'll win the music award. And he looked at me and went, okay. <laughs> and 
he did that note for note without even thinking about it. Nice. It was one of those things like when you can lay something out and you know how things work and you tell somebody if they don't think, they can sometimes kind of follow through. And that's exactly what he did. Right. Um, his instrument changed after a while, though, because playing trumpet in a rock band didn't work. So he switched to guitar when he was about 15. Oh, uh, OK. I and did back once he picked up the guitar. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So. So I want to fast forward a little bit. Um, I know a lot of the things that you base your career off of and, and your a lot of your teachings are from the things that you learned from Freddie Gruber over the years. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and how you and Freddie got to know each other and Freddie's approach and your approach now to teaching. Okay. Um, well, the way I hooked up with Freddie Gruber was kind of an uh, interesting story. In the 70s, my parents were out there on the dog show circuit, and there was a photographer who uh, would, you know, take photos of all the champions after they had won. Mm -hmm. And my mom and dad got to know him. His name was Eddie Rubin. He actually had, had been the early drummer for Neil Diamond. Oh, wow. And he was a student of Freddie Gruber's. And so, you know, my mom would, you know, brag about her sons a little bit. Oh, my son's playing drums and, you know, and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And Eddie told her several times, oh, you know, if your son is really serious, tell him to call him Freddie Gruber. So that was the first time I had heard Freddie's name. It, it came around uh, another way. And how old were you at the time? I was probably at that time 16, 17, okay. somewhere around there. So, you know, I was still kind of fumbling around, figuring out what, how, you know, what I wanted to do. I was playing in the jazz band. I got, actually got kicked out of the, the band program in high school uh, basically for just being a little bit of a, a, a you know, a guy who had the, the sensibility to challenge the band director. <laughs> and he didn't dig that. I'm sure I could have come back. But at that point in time, I had discovered all my rock and roll uh, drumming passions at that point in time. So playing in the jazz band in that particular period of high school and, and um, playing in the concert band just didn't seem so, you know, really connecting with me at the time. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, but my, uh, my local store, uh, the Music Stop, which was actually started by Terry Gibbs, the great vibist, and a drummer by the name of Mel Zelnick. Uh, those guys had the store together, and then Terry kind of got out of it. I, I guess him and Mel maybe didn't get get along, you know, doing business together, or maybe Terry just wanted to get out of the business altogether for being a, a, a store owner. Mm -hmm. But what I discovered later, which I didn't know at the time, when I was going to the music stop, was Fr Freddie Gruber was – a drum teacher at the music stop. That's when he kind of started his teaching. I think that was around the late 60s, 66, 67, uh, up until about 71 or 72. And I think he kind of moved away from that and just started teaching privately. But the funny story was that Mel Zelnick, the other owner of that store, was a gruff New York-based guy with a big, deep voice, you know. Right. And he would say, Bruce, if you're really serious, you want to study those drums, go study with Freddie Gruber. <laughs> Which is ironic because Mel always told me what a knucklehead and what a pest Freddie was. And so he, he really didn't like Freddie's antics, right. but the respect for his teaching ran quite deep. Mm -hmm. So those two, um, uh, uh, what do I want to say, uh, openings for the name of Freddie Gruber kind of resonated in my head. And around when I was about just 19, I think either just turning 19 I decided I was going to make that call and I called Freddie up and, and the first go around was really challenging with him on the phone. He gave you a lot of uh, 
jumping through hoops to see if you were serious, uh, you know, what, what your intentions were, et cetera, right. you know, but, but, but in a very off fashion, Freddie had a, a very peculiar sense of humor and a, and a sense about himself where he would just, you know, he would run you through the, the, the roses, so to speak. And if you couldn't hang, you couldn't hang. So right, right. I got annoyed at the first phone call with him and basically just said, yeah, I'll call you sometime later. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few months later, I finally just went, all right, I think, I think I need to, you know, up my game. Right. I was a penchant for tech or, um, drumming just because I say, met say that again. You, you, you froze a pens- for a second. And then, you know, I had, I had a great penchant for technique because, uh, one, I was a, a, a big baseball fan, so I was always studying the techniques of how guys would either hit or pitch. Mm-hmm. I was, a, I was a, a competitive skier. So technique was very interesting. And knowing that Freddie was one of the great technique gurus, so to speak, really started to get me seething and going, I, I, I got I to check this guy out. So when I hooked up with him, you know, I was uh, really fascinated with, the, with his approach. And uh, his detail at the time that I hooked up with him, okay, because you have to look at different periods. Now, I hung with Freddie from that period, which would have been about the end of 77 or beginning of 78 until about 1999 regularly. And Mm -hmm. I say regularly at 99, I just said, that's enough. I got to get out of here because Freddie was sometimes so overreaching at that point in my life because we were so close. But I watched his teaching method. And his approach teach, uh, I mean, um, his teaching uh, approach changed through those years because he was, you know, either growing tired of certain things or he wanted to incorporate this. Or And eventually, I think he just got to the point where he didn't want to work out of the books and do the detailed stuff. When I hooked up with him, 78, 79, 80, 81, unbelievable details. Uh, it was still a cryptic Freddy. You still had to uh, read through his cryptic message sometimes because he was not the most clear um sometimes purposely and sometimes just that's just the way he was you know mm-hmm. it's hard, to, hard to figure freddie out sometimes but i was uh i was with not to interrupt you i was with jojo mayer last week and he was saying sort of the same thing when he was studying with freddie that it was it was like a riddle almost yeah you know, and some it would just send you on your way with these riddles to right. to solve on your own well, the good thing about my relationship with Freddie that differs from most is that because I hung with him, I studied with him until about 84. So that was about seven years. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I'd gone on the road with my brother. I did a few things at roadworthy uh, gigs when I was a kid, you know, just getting out there and doing. Hello? 85. I just started Hello? to hang with him and I'd watch him teach, you know, well, and you, uh, everything you froze. I heard you say, uh, that you did some roadworthy things when you were okay. a kid and then it just froze again. Oh, oh that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I'll continue on there. So when I was younger and I, I would go on the road, um, you know, I would take a little break from Freddie, but my heart and soul of studying was pretty much good seven year period. Uh, after that time, I just became a fixture of hanging with him. So I would watch him teach and um, really kind of just collect information. So the relationship started to change. I became a house sitter for him. I would take him to the airport, uh, that kind of stuff. Then when I moved to Europe in the 90s, 
Freddie was uh, heartbroken, so to speak. He was running me through the 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 idea of like, you really don't want to go to Europe, do you? And at the end of the conversation, <laughs> my head was spinning, and I thought, no, you don't want me to go to Europe. Right. That's what it is. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I went. He came to travel with me about four times to go to the Frankfurt Music Fair, the Koblenz Drum Festival. And so by that time, my relationship with Freddie had such changed that I could ask him more direct questions and I would get better answers from him. Right. Sometimes very clear answers, sometimes still a little cryptic message here and there. Right, right, right. Uh, but uh, we would go to that, for the, for example, like the Koblenz Drum Festival, we would go and hang. And by the time we got out of there, it would be 1 in the morning, 1.30. We'd get back to the hotel around 2.30 or 3. We were just a little bit west of, or east of that city, Koblenz. And as we would get to the hotel, Freddie would be animated. And I would ask him specific questions because he would elbow me as one guy was doing something. And he would show, you know, give me an observation to check out. And I go, oh, OK. And then we would have a big in-depth conversation till about five in the morning. Wow. And like I said, at that point in time, you got a pretty animated Freddie with a lot of color. Sometimes, like I said, still cryptic and still riddle-oriented stuff, but sometimes very clear. And those were golden moments, man. And those... Those conversations resonate very clearly in my head to this day. So I'm sure because you know there's unfortunately Freddie's not around anymore, and there's a lot of people that that want to or wish that they had studied with him or you know taken the time to to seek him out. And uh, the fact that you had all these, as you say, golden moments with him that's that's pretty amazing. Oh yeah, that's yeah. I mean. He would call me up and when I was in town, for example, like one particular period of time was when I was living in Europe and I came into uh, L.A. to visit my family and hang out for I think it was the Christmas holidays or something like that. And Freddie called me up and said, Bruce, I want you to come over to the house and play for David. I'm like, David, who the hell is David? <laughs> Wackle, who do you think? <laughs> so, you know, I'm jet lagging and I'm thinking, what? what am I going to play for Dave Weckl that he's going to see as being interesting? Right. So Freddie Badge for another five minutes. And I relented. I went over there, uh, you know, shaken as I was driving over. It took me about seven minutes to get to Freddie's from where I lived. And uh, this is a, a pinnacle moment, though, I got to say, because what I realized at that point when I played for Dave, what I realized that I had that I took for granted was all that loose posture and gesture that was just a natural part of how I played, I didn't see it as anything beneficial. Right. And that's what a guy like Dave Weckl and Steve Smith were pursuing at the time when they hooked up with Freddie. Mm -hmm. So it really knocked me on the head of like, oh, I get it now. But that was the kind of relationship I had with Freddie. He would have, he would have me play for a lot of guys. I played for Steve Smith at his first lesson. And again, you know, always shaking in my boots, thinking, what am I going to play? But that thing just doing that loose thing was they'd see that immediately recognize it and go great that's what i want right now let's talk about that that loose okay. thing that you're talking about that yeah. loose posture because mm -hmm. that's that was the basis of everything there correct me if i'm wrong but that was the basis of everything that freddie talked about was was natural kind of ergonomic playing and and well you can speak to it more than i can but but his his approach was everything yeah. natural and everything so, loose and It was basically, it's, it's a recognition. If I just go into the, you know, somewhat of the philosophy about it, it's the mind-body relationship of how you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Recognizing 
how your anatomy naturally works. Now, we're podcasting, so there's no video to follow up on this, but you and I can see each other. If I just drop my wrist and let it hang and I bring it up, just push it up from my other hand, these tendons naturally draw to a close. Mm -hmm. Uh, that they don't close fully, but they actually just naturally pull. So that kind of recognition, housing the stick, is a very, very helpful way to unite anatomy and stick. Of course, the balance and the movement of the stick that you can get inside of as well is a very important factor. But every element of the anatomy, whether it's just inside the hand or it's from the shoulder down to the elbow, was investigated when I was a student mm -hmm. so that I had all the breakdowns of every approach. Uh, uh, it's interesting because there's a lot of guys who play that French grip approach. I didn't even know what that was because in the early studies, Freddie only detailed German traditional. And it wasn't until I was... Uh, hanging at Freddy's probably in the later 80s that he started to talk about French grip. Now, go back a few years. I was a uh, classical percussion student at Cal State Northridge. And my teacher, Karen Irvin, at the time, when I was going through timpani etudes and, and timpani uh, studies, uh, her approach was only French grip. And the funny thing was is that I never really put the connecting factor of French grip playing on the drum set. It just I didn't see or I just didn't make a connection until I was in Freddie's house, he's playing on his drum set. And um, it might have been when we were doing an airport run. I was taking him to the airport. And he popped his head in the room and looked at me and went, Bruce, put your thumb up. And of course, <laughs> I stopped and went like this, put my thumb up and, <laughs> you know, berated me for a moment, probably. And, uh, and then I asked him, I said, why? And his answer was perfect because it was a guy that I had been checking out pretty in depth at that particular time. And he said, Billy Higgins. Mm. And I went, oh, okay. That started me down a whole other path. Now, in that period of the 90s, like a little bit later, Freddie started to incorporate the French grip, German grip, and the traditional grip all in a series of a few moves. The details, though, I got to say, were nowhere near as clear and as uh, in depth as what we had done in those later 70s. Right. So, and I think part of it was is that he just felt restless. I think in some regards, he didn't really want to teach that way because it requires a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of responsibility, a lot of thinking and a lot of breaking down a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. I know that now as a teacher because I, that's what I do. I break down a lot of details for my students. Uh, what I do is I take that narrative, that inspiration of the narrative and I'm pretty clear about how to bring it about, and not just in the talking points, but to physically make those changes. Right. And um, so, you know, th those, those going back to all the, the freightiness, it really just inspired me to think deeply about how I approach teaching and how I do what I do as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, continuing the path of playing. Right. I got to say, the playing element has always been a, a very nice uh, scene. You know, there's a lot of guys who teach that maybe don't play or, or, or they're not out there playing. I've always kept a firm game of playing because all those experiences have allowed me to fine tune and find dialect in the technical approach. Because the technical approach, while you well know, you can have chops for days, but that doesn't mean you can play the instrument or that you have a specific, you know, 
interest in a dialect. When I say dialect, I mean a musical style. And, mm -hmm. and when you talk dialect, jazz has several dialects in just that genre. Sure. Rock and roll has several dialects in that genre. So fine-tuning those uh, was a good um, quest for me. And I was very active in my, you know, 20s, 30s, even in my 40s, like trying to fine-tune, even still to this day. I'm, you know, I'm now right. in my 50s. So uh, it's, it's really about uh, finding what the technical approach is. Because you said loose, that's what those guys were after. Loose is good, Nick, except if it doesn't have any body to it or mm -hmm. any density to the stroke. So that if you have loose arms, but you're getting a very tippy-tappy sound, that doesn't help us. Right. So what I learned to do was stay with the looseness, but understand the certain dynamic of inside the hand to get that crispy, tight sound or uh, density that we want out of the stick, still being able to play light if you want, and being able to let it go. Now, playing over the top loud... That's a thing where, you know, that's a choice. If you really want to do that, then you run the gamut of perhaps hurting yourself at some point. Right. Um, that's something that I've been blessed with. I've never had any drum injuries or anything that's ever kept me from playing a gig in terms of an injury. And I hear a lot of guys who do have those things. Yeah. And Absolutely. it upsets me when I hear it. And that's, that's Jimmy Chapin's whole game was Moeller, mm -hmm. who was another guy that I hung very in-depth with as well. Oh, nice. What yeah. was he like? Uh, he was funny because when I hung with him and Freddie at the same time, it was like uh, the grumpy odd couple, except you had two Oscar Madisons. <laughs> you know, it was like sometimes they would get along nicely and talk about the old days. And sometimes they were just button heads and they'd pull me, they'd each pull me aside, you know, as I, I was like the middle guy. Right. And, and Gruber would go, what, what's up with Jimmy, man? I think he's gone nuts. And then Jimmy would pull me aside and go like, what, what's up with Freddie, man? Posture and gesture? What is that? It's all BS, man. It's, <laughs> I don't understand why these guys want to study with them. And so, you know, I'd try to, like, keep the peace. Right. And sometimes I'd go to dinner with them, and then they'd be both hanging, and they'd be like, really? Just remember back at 42nd Street, man, the guy? And they'd be talking about a great story. It was really nice. People don't know this, but Jimmy Chapin was Freddie's teacher, man. Freddie studied with Jimmy for, like, a long weekend. Hmm. And he never talked about that. So the where did Freddie get his methodology to teach? It's very, very uh, unknown, you know, and, he, and right. Freddie kept it that way. You never really knew where Freddie got his information. Right, right, right. Now, you had mentioned your teaching style and the way that you approach teaching. And I want to get into that in a little bit because I want to talk about the DVD that you have as well. Sure. Um, but I want to rewind a little bit. You You talk about dialect and I've heard you mention before about drumming language um, and I think that that's a thing that is very hard to to really put your finger on with drumming because it's not like an, a guitar or a piano that's a melodic instrument so how do you suggest that what first off what do you mean by the drumming language and the and the drumming dialect and how do you suggest that players themselves develop that for in their playing well okay so one of the things that I think was, at least for me, you know, I, I can only speak from my personal experiences and how I bring that forth from my playing mm -hmm. and, and my students as well. But when you can uh, take the tension out of your playing and really get yourself to be really loose in your approach, right. that at least offers now that you don't have any particular tension in anywhere that's going to impede how you want to implement your drumming 
So that being said, as a language, as we have tongues, teeth, vocal cords, and ears to hear, uh, we learn to speak a language. There are some people out there that can learn the dialect of a language very, very well. And I have, you know, uh, many people in my life that are trilingual. Uh, my wife is trilingual. She speaks three languages. My brother David is trilingual. He speaks three languages. And they both speak them very good. My wife actually was born in Russia, but she speaks German like a German, uh, or at least the area of Germany that she lived in, Stuttgart. Right. So that being said, how does one attain that? I think it has to do with your ear. How do you hear things? Of course, your body can be very responsive. So if you're loose in your drumming approach, you can fine-tune what you want to get out of that for dialect. And when I mean dialect, if you're thinking about um, the jazz idiom, mm -hmm. there are certain guys to take note of. Alvin Jones, Tony Williams, Roy Haynes, Philly Joe Jones. Each guy had a different lope to what they were doing on the ride symbol, a different personal approach to that. But you know, there's a consistency in, too, how they approach that. And by listening and figuring out how that works from the ear point of view, that's one mode. The other mm -hmm. mode, though, is you can find it physically, too. If you know how to move a certain way to get things to swing based on having that loose anatomy, you can find what that is. In other words, when you start with the looseness and you have that, that opens up your body to be more in harmony with what you're hearing in your ear. Right. And so that's really kind of the approach, and, and that's really what I've always felt is a strong, um, what do I want to say, for me to listen to. And again, you know, personalizing everything is always important because you got to go with your passions. Right. So, and you want to fine tune what you do and not worry about what the other guys are doing. You got to go and live with your passion of what you like musically and fine tune what that's all about. Or whether it's, you know, being the greatest rock and roll drummer you can possibly be. And I don't say the greatest rock and roll drummer, of course. I say the greatest that you can be. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's about. That's what my whole game is about. As the coach I see myself is making those visual observations and helping to find the physical uh, exercise to help promote the change, to change the reflex. Because sometimes when you do things as a player, you might not be aware that you're physically doing something that may be some kind of impedance to what you want to get out. And uh, that's really important. But the, Interesting. the you know, connecting to the dialect and all that stuff as a musician is oh so important. So we got to listen to our masters and look back so we can look forward to where we want to bring our own playing, you know. Interesting. I like that makes total sense. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk, talk about your, your career and, and some obstacles that you've had to overcome yourself. And, and I know that there's a lot of people out there now that are, you know, that are trying to make their way in this, in this business. And it's a lot easier to learn from somebody that's already been through it and who has made mistakes and has learned from them. So what are some mistakes that you made and how'd you overcome them? Wow. Um, you know, um, what I would say is, you know, some mistakes that I had done would have been to isolate myself sometimes and not get out as 
as one should when you're a younger guy. Like, for example, so there was a period of time when my brother and I got our first record deal that I felt that I was the, you know, baddest cat. I didn't need to be playing with this kind of a group or I didn't need to do a casual. And the point is, is that all playing opportunities have something that you can learn from. Mm -hmm. Uh, At some point, you know, you can say no, and that can be a choice. But if you want to keep yourself in the mix of the kind of guys that you want to be working with, you got to make yourself available all the time. So that was one error was not being available. I think another thing that I wished I would have pursued a little bit more that I didn't do that I think is uh, something that everybody should pursue is working on your songwriting to become a songwriter. Because, you know, while some guys may not feel like they've got anything to say songwriting, that's a developed art just like anything else. You can go through and you can work on that. Fortunately, I have a brother who writes and we've been working together for 30 something years. So he writes often in the kind of style that that pleases me as a player. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm always a fan of his compositions. That doesn't mean that I'm, you know, giving myself a uh, uh, slack on that. I should still be out there working on my songwriting. But my plate is filled because one thing that's been my passion, not just the playing thing, was always education. So my passion for education and playing have been, you know, they fill the the, the bandwidth pretty wide, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would, you know, hard for me to grab perhaps another element in that twist of music, you know, and, right. and try to work on my songwriting. Not to make excuses, but, you know, that's part of my passion is education. So actually, I am working on a book that is about 95% finished. And that book is uh, uh, basically a concept book of how to develop odd time playing. Oh, great. And I have three sections to that. I think there might be a fourth. I'm still deliberating with that. I have a a former student who's just helping me format everything so everything looks the same. Because when I was writing all the notation on Finale, uh, I'd try this font and I'd try this. And then it was like, before I knew it, the book looked like, you know, schizophrenic. (laughs) So I said, hey, man, can you help me format this? Because it seems like it's getting a little bit convoluted. But yeah, you know, my advice for young guys would be, uh, first of all, find your passion. Second of all, be the best drummer you possibly can be. And that means look at the landscape of drumming and don't just be finite and look at one little lane. Increase your range of what you listen to. Learn how to record. Learn how to use either a Pro Tools or Finale or, I mean Finale, um, a Logic, any of the recording softwares. It's very cheap now to buy microphones and to learn to mic yourself. Mm-hmm. There's so much easy technology out there. The game is so easy. So get involved in that. I had a student who studied with me a little while. It's been a few years now, but he, he hung for just a little bit. And uh, he was really active in recording uh, stuff for YouTube and making these really cool kind of drum and bass-ish kind of tunes um, you know, kind of inspired by Jojo Mayer and that that kind of stuff. Right. But with vocalists and, and stuff like that. And he was getting big hits, you know, like pretty good hits on YouTube. I don't know where he is to this day, mm-hmm. exactly today. But he was involved in learning Finale at the time and learning Logic and writing 
and doing all those things that I just spoke of that I think are so important for drummers to learn. I think another important thing, Nick, and I'm sure you would probably attest to this as well, is to understand the dynamic of the business end of things. In other words, networking and staying out there and really putting your foot, your, your, your foot forward all the time with what you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you stand in the back of the line, just kind of waiting for somebody to call you forward, it's probably not going to happen. Yes, it does occasionally, but if you don't throw yourself forward and at least go, Hey, here I am. This is what I do. You know, you're not going to have the, the, the better chance. And mm-hmm. I'm always about trying to increase the the odd factor, the odds factor of what you can do. Sure. And the, you know, the aspect of like you're saying of getting out there and networking, I think networking gets a bad name because it comes off as, you know, being out there as like this sleazy opportunist. But I, you know, when you and I talk about networking, that's not the type of networking we're talking about. We're talking about building genuine relationships, helping, yeah. Hel- yeah. helping other people, in their career and they in turn help you. And it's a, it's a win-win situation, not where you're just trying to say, Hey man, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? No, no. You're just trying to make good friends that you dig, that you like hanging out with that have like-minded ideas about music and about maybe uh, philosophy and just life in general and getting out there and, and hanging, you know, if Mm -hmm. you isolate yourself and you just think, Oh, I'm just going to practice my butt off and be the greatest. That's only one small portion you got to develop your 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 human sensibilities as well. So you reach out and you have good communicative skills and all that kind of stuff that is necessary just to be a good working guy. Nobody wants to be around a guy that's, you know, so removed sometimes that maybe it makes people feel uncomfortable. And especially in when you're working with higher profile artists. Mm-hmm. You're there to serve them and make them feel really good and comfortable with what they do. If there's any question about that from your end, you're probably not going to keep the gig. You know what I mean? Right. And that's Absolutely. a dy- yeah, that's a dynamic of of the personality thing that uh, I don't think is really brought forth in terms of uh, guys maybe speaking about that because some guys just kind of have it naturally. They're just a great hang and everybody goes, oh, you got to call Joe on bass because he's such a good hang. You know? Right, right. And did he manifest that on purpose? No, he was probably just a good hang and then took care of his business. Mm-hmm. But for those of us who maybe are a little bit more challenged sometimes socially, uh, there are ways to break through uh, your your thing. And one of them is go out and hang. Go, go to jam sessions. Hang with guys. You don't even have to play at the jam sessions. Just get to know the guys that you see. Hey, that guy's an interesting dude. I like this guy. Mm-hmm. And then maybe outside of the jam session, make something happen. Right. I always tell my students, again, for like playing, don't wait for people to call you. Host the session. Call people up and get them together and play at your place. Yeah. And, and if they can't make it, don't be you know dissuaded by that and dejected and go, oh, nobody wants to play. Look at your book the following week and make the calls again. And eventually things will start to manifest. When I was younger, I got uh, really good advice. And it was the same thing for my drum instructor, uh, Glenn Farrakhone. And he, you know, his whole thing was don't, you know, don't sit around and wait for the phone to ring, make this stuff happen. If you got a gig, people will play the gig. If you book the gig and you need somebody, so you want to play with this organ player, then book the gig and hire him. If you exactly. play with this guitar player, book the gig and hire him. They'll play. Yep. You know, yep. that's and, right. And that's, that's right. just, yep. just building these, uh, these relationships over the years. Um, but the key is to making sure they're 
beneficial for both people, which we both agree on, you know, it's sure. Not, absolutely. Be this like this sleazy thing. So no, no, exactly. I, I, and I know exactly what you mean when you, when you bring that up, uh, some people kind of get put off by that, but again, it's just trying to make friends. How do you make friends in general? You, you seek and search out people, you see somebody and you resonate with them and you hang mm-hmm. do that in the music community as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about this DVD that you have out. Uh, it's it's Drumming with Bruce Becker, Concepts and Philosophies. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the DVD. Uh, the DVD uh, took me about four years to actually actually put it together and and have it, you know, in a finished format where I could hold a, uh, a double DVD disc in my hand with artwork and all that stuff. Right. Um, it's, it's basically a lot of the narratives and some of the breakdowns of things that I think are so important to build a better uh, the mind-body relationship that we need so much in drumming. Drumming is the most unusual instrument of any instrument out there in that we are, you know, using all four limbs and we are physically involved in that instrument like no other instrument, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So that being said, all the dynamic little setup things and things that I think are important to understand uh, in building that relationship of the hand and the stick are basically put there in little vignettes. I think my clarity is, 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 uh, is, is solid. I've gotten some nice accolades from, from Steve Smith, from David Garibaldi. Um, I don't know if you know who Renee Kramers is, the Dutch drummer who's got uh, I'm the, not familiar. they have a Dutch duo. It's him and a, a former student of his, they call themselves drum ambassadors. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. And yep, Renee just is, just didn't know their names. Yeah, Renee is the tall, thin guy, and I know Renee for many years uh, from 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 when I was living over in Belgium. Um, yeah, so you know, it's just basically those vignettes. I got to say that you know, in doing a DVD, what the hardest part is is to put content in there um, and try to make it interactive to a certain degree. So I tried to do that to some degree, and I know that there will be a lot of value from that, but I still believe in the one-on-one process because it is so important to have the detailed conversation with somebody and look at their eyeballs. If you see little X's in their eyeballs, you know, you haven't made the hit. When I see, you know, the eyeball, you know, dilate and, uh, the little like aha moment, I can see that for sure. When somebody gets exactly what that experience is, because what you're doing is you're narrating a feel. And I don't think sometimes there's enough words in the English language to narrate a feel, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of developing a technical approach. People could say, ah, put your stick in there, play it with your wrist. Yeah, that's all good. But the nuance of things that I know that are very valuable that, that you know, were instilled to me from, from uh, studying with Freddie for so long and some of the things that I gained from Jimmy Chapin were so valuable and took so long to process. What I'm trying to do is create the narrative so it's clear it doesn't seem so mystical it's not cryptic and it's like hey here's what it is matter of factly right. now that being said just because it's clear doesn't make it always real easy everybody's looking for instant potatoes mm-hmm. and if you ever ate an instant potato you know how crappy it tastes <laughs> you know you got to harvest grow and all that other stuff so right so but in the in the video very detailed stuff i was very fortunate that i have a student who is a funny guy from Italy, uh, Tony Arco. He's a great drummer from Milan. And we did 
a little follow-up interview for the first DVD where I talk about hands. And he he threw me softball questions because he knows a lot about what I do as, an, as a teacher because I've been to Italy many, many times. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, mostly my hosted. Favorite, my favorite place. Yeah, and he's hosted a lot of those events. So the it, it was really cool because he asked great questions and I was able to detail them in a, in a very nice, easy conversation with him. Right. And, and add to, I think, the – what I want to say, the three-dimensional nature of what it is I'm talking about. Because again, when you're just looking at a video, it's very flat. It's very two-dimensional. There's there's not a lot of depth. I tried to add that in the vignettes that I put together, mm-hmm. but I think the the interview with Tony kind of brings it a little bit more forward for, nice. for, for people. So Now, would you say this is a beginning DVD, it's an intermediate DVD, advanced, or all of the above? Well, you know, I had a couple of guys who reviewed it. Ian Croft uh, from iDrumMag, he's from the UK. He loved it. And he said, man, it's so great. He said, I see it as being uh, for anybody. Now, stark beginner, like a guy who's starting from step one, maybe not. But a guy who's had drumsticks in his hands for maybe a year or so or two years. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and the guy who's had sticks in his hand for 40 years, too, who wants to make those changes. I mean, I've had a lot of older guys who come to me. I was very fortunate to have Dave Garibaldi come and study with me a few years ago. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Um, I've had guys like Mark Shulman. Uh, Daniel Glass was a longtime student of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, Clayton Cameron came and took a lesson. Um, that's years ago, but he came out. He wanted to see what all the hoopla was about, so to speak. Right. Um one of my early students who I always forget to bring uh, up is uh, he studied with me when in my first batch of teaching, like almost more than 30 years ago, was Glenn Sobel, if you know that name. Why does that name sound familiar? Glenn is a hard-hitting rockin' drummer who plays with – he's played with a lot of those like rocky, fusion-y guitar players. But lately he's been doing the Alice Cooper gig. I got you. And he's a good kid, man. I mean he's, he was a, you know really one of my early guys – when I left, because I was leaving the music stop, the, the place I taught at, to go on tour for my first uh, trip overseas, and the music stop was going to close, and I was so nervous about who I brought uh, Glenn to. I don't know if he, re- if he knows that, but I was like trying to find the perfect teacher to pass him off to so that all my hard work would continue. And uh, I guess I made a point in some regard to him because his passion never let up. And here he is today in his 40s still kicking it hard, man. That's and he, great. He, yeah, he's a burner, man. That's so, great. Yep. So, uh, if, you, so if, if anybody wants to get the DVD, they can go to your website, which is BruceBecker.com. Yes, and BruceBecker.com. And, and go ahead. It's, it's available just through me. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a downloadable version, actually, if, if people are uh, challenged with not having, you know, because now DVD is becoming like sometimes a little bit of an older format for some right. guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, an, a download available through the drum channel. If you go to their store and their download section, uh, that is available. But I, I prefer the hard copy. I just like that because you get the artwork. I have a nice liner notes on there that I put on the DVD. Um, I don't know if that comes in download form or not, mm-hmm. but uh, if you want to order it, you can order it from me. And as we had spoken earlier, Nick, if if you order the DVD from me uh, through Nick's and our 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 conversation today, I'll 
throw five dollars off on the DVD. So that's great discount for everybody. So what I'll do for every every podcast, there's show notes. So all of this information will be on the show notes on the website for here. So you'll have the direct link to Bruce's website. You can there's a link on there to email him to order the DVD. Just mention that you heard it on the Drummers Resource Podcast, and Bruce is going to give you five bucks off just for mentioning it. So absolutely, that's a that's a quick and easy thing to uh, to save yourself five bucks and to get a great DVD in your hands to really uh, you know help you help you navigate the waters of connecting your your mind and body and 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 everything together in your playing. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think that's the 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 when you get older and you've been through the ringer enough on your uh, drumming path, uh, you look back and I think some of the things that I'm I'm speaking about are the things that a lot of guys wish oh, I wish I would have done that earlier. But I always say better late than never. You can right. always make physical changes. You know, don't get that attitude of you can't you know teach an old dog new tricks. Nonsense. You know your elasticity in your head. <laughs> is what's required. You know, if you got a good forward thinking head and know that you can accomplish these things, there's no, no, uh, roadblock at all, you know? Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Yep. Yep. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for taking all this time to, to chat with me. It's, it's been great. And I know the listeners really got a lot out of it and it's great to hear you share all these, these stories of, of where you've been and, and the work that you've done with Freddie and, and where you're taking it on your own. You're taking the, the stuff that you learn and, and kind of developing it into your own style, which I think is important, not only for, for drumming, but for everything in general that, that people learn. So it's really great to hear all of your stories. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. If I did it the Freddie Gruber way, we'd, we'd never get anything done. We'd be sitting at the supermarket <laughs> at five minutes to 10 at the salad bar There'd be two guys waiting on the couch, and uh, by the time you got in, your lesson would be at two in the morning. And <laughs> while it was fun, man, it was fun in those days. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't, I couldn't do that kind of a scheduling. It's just, it's not practical for for really getting stuff across. So, right. in, this, in this day of, in this age of information and uh, people trying to be clear about everything, that's where I stand. I'm just trying to make the the the, the you know get get the connection going right away. So. Well, we appreciate that, and, and I appreciate you connecting with us here on the Drummer's Resource. And uh, like I said, I know that everybody enjoyed it. I did myself as well, and uh, we'll have to get you back on here. We can chat some more. All right, so that interview cuts off abruptly. We actually uh, got disconnected about five times during the interview. Uh, so you didn't miss anything. We just I actually just called Bruce back and just thanked him again for coming on to the show. So uh, that was the end of the interview. You didn't miss anything, promise. With this interview and all the interviews, you can visit drummersresource.com and check out the show notes page. And I have links to Bruce's DVD and to his website and everything right on there. So just go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 28 and you can find everything you need about this interview as well as all the other interviews that we've done. Visit Bruce at brucebecker.com or visit us, drummersresource.com or facebook.com forward slash drummersresource. And if you're on Instagram, take a picture wherever you're at. Tag us on Instagram at drummersresource. Say hello. We would definitely like to see those pictures. And if you want to get at us on Twitter, we're at drummersrsource. And until next week, keep on drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you on Monday. Peace. (laughs) 